Thank you so much, Olga. This is, uh, I am overwhelmed and uh, uh, it's a tremendous pleasure to be here uh, today and uh, to speak about a topic that is uh, uh, near and dear to my heart. It's, uh, you know, I've been doing it um, uh, for many years and it always um, interested me uh, to figure out uh, what does it mean when uh, people use phrases such as complex and, uh, and uh, unusual uh, when it comes to describing the right ventricle? Is there anything that I need to do on my end here? Just give the grand rounds. <laughs> Very good. Just to switch the uh, switches. For some reason, it's not OK. Once I went to sleep. Having issues picking it back up. Let's do this. I'll get started. So uh, that's okay. That's um, what um, what I will be uh, speaking to you this morning is about the uh, right ventricle in congenital heart disease and how we use imaging. There we go. Thank you so much. How we use uh, imaging to um, guide patient management. So. I wish I had uh, some more uh, disclosures, but I don't. And what I'll be spending my time on is on develop, uh, the, f the first part will be to uh, unravel the mysteries of the right ventricle when it comes to its structure, um, its embryologic background, and, um, and how it actually works. Then we'll uh, discuss, we'll spend a few minutes on choice of imaging uh, tools to assess right ventricular uh, structure and function. And finally, we'll give, uh, I'll, I'll speak a little bit about how we use it in uh, repair tetralogy of fallow, which is one of the uh, many conditions in which the right ventricle plays a key role. So let's dive right into it. And, um, it's always helpful to remember where, uh, where we come from. So when it comes uh, to the right ventricle, it's helpful to look at the evolution of the cardiovascular system um, and to note that the right ventricle has developed much later uh, along the evolutionary ladder than the left ventricle. The right ventricle, in fact, does not exist in fish. What the fish has in terms of an next time that you um, uh, prepare your uh, salmon or, uh, or, or your favorite fish, uh, please take a moment to uh, make sure that I'm, uh, uh, I'm on target here. But if you do that, what you will find is that the fish uh, uh, that, of course, do not breathe air, uh, basically have a single ventricle. And then on top of that muscular pump sits an extension uh, that gives rise to the uh, arteries that go to the gills and the arteries that go to the body. And that uh, muscular extension that works in a peristaltic <coughs> fashion is, uh, has been called either a conus or an infundibulum. It all depends whether you look from the inside or the outside, but it's exactly the same thing. When you go up about 145 million years up the evolutionary ladder, 
and you go and you look at amphibians, that's the next time that you uh, examine a frog, uh, you will find that, again, we, uh, the frogs have a single ventricle with a conus that arises from that single ventricle, but now there's a spiral septum up within that conus that streams the blood uh, to the lungs, because they have uh, primitive uh, lungs, and to the body. So now we have uh, the, um, the early part of a separation between circulations. Uh, and it's only when you get to reptiles that you start to see a vestige of what will later in the evolutionary ladder will become a right ventricle. So it's a small kind of chamber, pumping chamber uh, under the conus, still with a large communication with the main ventricular chamber uh, that we would call a left ventricle. Uh, but we now have the origin of a right ventricle. And it's only when we get to birds and to mammals that we in fact have separation, complete or near complete separation of the circulations. And now here in uh, blue is the right ventricle and we'll, uh, we'll, de we'll de describe and define what it means uh, to have a right ventricle sitting under a much smaller uh, infundibulum here. And this is the circulation that we are all familiar with. So about, it took the right ventricle the specialized lung pump, about 320 million years to develop. Uh, and all of that is happening in mammals during embryogenesis in a uh, much, in a fast forward uh, fashion. Uh, and I, I will show you uh, how, that, uh, how that occurs. So the embryology of the cardiovascular system parallels the evolution um, and it begins, the heart begins as a straight heart tube um, with one ventricular pumping chamber. That will be the left ventricle um, when, this, when this is all said and done. And it develops into two circulations in parallel uh, with the right and left sides of the, of the heart. The right ventricle develops from the uh, proximal uh, bulbus cordis, so the conus, uh, as part of the primitive heart tube. Let's see how it, how it goes. So this is, uh, this is an animation uh, taken uh, from an embryology course at Harvard Medical School. Uh, this could, uh, and uh, what we are looking here at 16 to 18 days of uh, gestation. And we are looking at the, at the sort of the disc stage of the embryo. So it's kind of a flat disc with the notochord in the back. So this is the back, this is the future head, this is the future uh, bottom, left and right. And we're looking at this uh, disc and see what happens here. So this disc uh, enlarges. You can see here the formation of blood vessels within that disc. We now remove the if you will, the body, we are only looking at the vascular system. And you notice here the uh, primitive aortic arches, or rather bronchial arches, putting back the body. This is now the future brain right down here. And now down here at the front is the primitive heart tube. 
So what you have here is the straight hot tube with the arterial branches um, coming off that and going to the back of the embryo. Down here in the bottom, you can see the uh, veins bringing the blood back from the from the brain as well as from the uh, developing body. Now let's look at this uh, embryo in at the embryonic heart in some detail. So again, now we are at 18 to 22 days of gestation. The heart tube is straight. At the bottom is the sinus venosus, the confluence of the veins coming back from the body. Uh, they all drain to a common atrium. At this stage, we have one of each that uh, drains into a ventricle. Above that is another um, <coughs> uh, small chamber, has muscular wall and is pumping. Uh, that is the bulbous cordis. That would become the infundibulum in the developed heart, which gives rise to the truncus arteriosus. Now we are talking about arteries, and uh, they give that give rise to the at this stage just one pair of aortic arches. And what happens next is that that heart straight tube will loop to the right. And that's a fundamental process during um, cardiogenesis that transitions the heart from circulation in series to, uh, uh, to two circulations in parallel. So here we are. This is, the, this is an animation of uh, looping. And this is the normal kind of looping. The straight heart tube uh, uh, loops to the right, so and that would bring the uh, the common atrium now lies in the back instead of at the bottom. It uh, now we have an AV canal, an atrioventricular canal between the atrium and the ventricle, but it's all aligned with the future left ventricle. That's the only ventricle that exists in this embryonic heart. And that goes into the infundibulum that gives right to the truncus arteriosus and the arteries. The future right ventricle will develop from this part of the embryonic heart. The right ventricle is uh, this, the morphology of the right ventricle is distinctly different from that of the left ventricle. If you look at these side by side, as this slide shows, you see, you see two different morphologies. The left ventricle, very characteristically, uh, has a smooth superior septal surface. You can see the papillary muscles are attached to the free wall. Um, with no attachments to the septum. This is mitral valve. There is no muscle separating the mitral from the aortic valve. And you know this is the aortic valve. Here are the coronary arteries, and this is the aorta. So this appearance of a, if you will, strawberry-shaped or torpedo-shaped uh, left ventricle is highly characteristic. In contrast, the right ventricle uh, looks anything but that. It, uh, it has plenty of trabeculations. Uh, the tricuspid valve attaches to the septum as opposed to the mitral valve, which attaches to the free wall. And then we have this large sleeve of muscle that separates this tricuspid valve from the pulmonary valve, unlike this uh, fibrous continuity between the tricuspid and between the mitral and the aortic valves. So let's take a closer look at this right ventricle. And remember the embryology. Remember the, the uh, we started out with a 
just the left ventricle, single left ventricle, and then an infundibulum. So the right, what we call right ventricle today, in fact, is made up of two distinct chambers. One of them is uh, the actual right ventricle, that's the sinus or inflow, which is this part of the chamber. In this diagram, it's colored in yellow, and um, I hope you can see that. Um, and this is the pumping portion of the right ventricle. That's the part that has developed in order to accommodate pumping blood to the lungs, which uh, is only necessary in creatures that uh, breathe air and have lungs, uh, not necessary in fish or uh, even in amphibians. The infundibulum, which was there from the very beginning, is of course present, and this is this part of the right ventricle that is colored in blue. Now, most of us think about the infundibulum just as this part of the muscle that's underneath the pulmonary valve, in the exit, the outflow of the right ventricle. And that's not quite right. Uh, turns out that the infundibulum has its own apex and its own trabeculations down here. It's just that the way that pathologists have always cut the heart with taking, uh, and I did it for uh, at least two years uh, during my fellowship in cardiac pathology, is to open the right ventricle along its inflow and then take a, and then open it up to the pulmonary valve, and that was the end of it. And what that does, it obscures the actual morphology and size of the infundibulum. The right ventricle also is very distinct from the left ventricle in a normal heart uh, in that its mass is and wall thickness are much smaller in comparison with the left ventricle. So the right ventricular mass is about one-sixth that of the left ventricular mass. And it has um, a thin compact layer. You can see here in this low magnification uh, micrograph that uh, the compact part of the right ventricular muscle is actually quite thin and uh, much of the right ventricular wall is uh, made up of trabeculations with deep recesses. The myocardial ar architecture is fascinating in the sense that both the right ventricle and the left ventricle are tightly uh, related to each other through four layers of spiraling muscle bundles that encircling both ventricles and uh, they form a single functional unit. And this is a posterior view and this is a superior view of these spiraling muscle bundles. And what's important to uh, note though is that first of all the thickness and the orientation of the muscle bundles in the left ventricle, in the right ventricle are quite different. In the left ventricle, you have prominent three layers that uh, goes from epicardium to endocardium, and there's a gradient in the uh, angle of these muscle bundles that go from longitudinal to circular to oblique in the left ventricle, whereas in the right ventricle, it's predominantly longitudinal, predominantly from the base to the apex with a small angle, and that determines, that structure determines function. Uh, this is an old observation, but I still like it because, uh, because it 
uh, it's being uh, validated again and again in using newer and, 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 and more exotic uh, imaging techniques. But that right ventricle, unlike the left ventricle, which works, uh, uh, it has a rinking motion, uh, basically like that. The right ventricle works more uh, in a peristaltic uh, fashion. And you can see here, this is the, this is the, in, uh, the red here shows an activation, the uh, boundary of activation of the right ventricle. And you can see how the uh, wave of electrical activation uh, goes from the AV node, spreads in the septum and then the free wall and up the outflow such that the infundibulum, the distal infundibulum, uh, legs behind the right ventricular inflow by um, by about uh, uh, 80 or the 25 to 50 milliseconds uh, delay. That's in a normal heart. Uh, this is another series of studies that uh, we did using MRI tagging um, back about uh, almost 15 years ago, published uh, in 2005. And uh, this is we took some volunteers and uh, we used MRI to tag the myocardium, which is basically a method to track motion of the myocardium, and then translate it into uh, displacement, and then uh, 3D strain to study the kinematic of the right ventricle. And of course, what we find is that the right uh, ventricular volume uh, the right ventricle eject, the right ventricular volume decreases as a result of uh, motion of the free wall towards the septum, motion of the base towards the apex, and bulging of the septum uh, towards the RV free wall as the left ventricle contracts. So these are sort of from a uh, movement or motion perspective, these are the three elements that result in the right ventricle ejecting blood. And of course, there's, a, there's a plenty of nuances in terms of how uh, there are regional variations, not all parts of the right ventricular wall uh, behave in exactly the same manner. And that goes back into the peristalsis, uh, peristaltic motion uh, of the right ventricle. And, of, and uh, I also mentioned the right, the left ventricle, there's a, a lot of rinking and a lot of angular motion in the left ventricle, which makes it a very efficient pump. In the right ventricle, there's far much less of that. It's not that it doesn't exist, but there's just simply much less of that. And uh, with this study, we are able to measure that and compare that with the uh, left ventricle. When it comes to assessing the right ventricle, and especially assessing right ventricular function, it's uh, difficult to apply standard indices that are, were developed and validated for the left ventricle, uh, it's difficult to apply them for the right ventricle for several reasons. Uh, amongst other them is the fact that the right ventricle uh, continues to eject after the pulmonary valve closes. In fact, you can detect uh, forward flow in early diastole in the main pulmonary artery, and in some cases, especially in, the, in diseased uh, circumstances, you can find late diastolic antegrade flow in the main pulmonary artery. So, uh, something that you would almost never see on the left side of the heart. 
the right ventricle because it's a lung pump and as long as the lungs are healthy and as long as the left side of the heart is healthy then the pressure in the right side of the circulation is about one-sixth that of the left side of circulation resistance is low and capacitance is high and all of these lead to uh, uh, continued uh, inertia and pulse wave reflections, again making it challenging to apply the usual uh, indices that we use for the left ventricle uh, to apply on the right side of the circulation. Another thing that is important to keep in mind, and we've learned this um, in, in the last uh, 15 uh, years or so, is that the right, vent right ventricular size and function depend on left ventricular size and function. That observation should not be um, surprising because uh, a French physiologist uh, some hundred years ago or so by the name of Bernheim uh, figured that out in reverse. He noted that uh, patients who underwent, uh, who had myocardial infarction, survived myocardial infarction, developed right heart failure. And uh, that, that's, so right ventricular dysfunction that follows left ventricular dysfunction is termed Bernheim effect. And, but, and we uh, noted that you can have the reverse. You can have a perfectly normal left heart, but if your right side of the, your right ventricle, as in, for example, uh, pulmonary hypertension when the right ventricle starts to fall apart, or repair tetralogy of Fallot with advanced right heart disease, the left ventricle begins to deteriorate. And this is not surprising given that the, I showed you the muscle fibers, they actually encircle both ventricles. So the right ventricle and left ventricle share um, muscle fibers. They share space within the pericardial sac. They have a coronary system that is again being shared. There's right coronary and left coronary, but they uh, communicate with each other. And then there's of course uh, neurohumoral factors that uh, when you start, when you have heart failure, affect both ventricles. So the two units of the uh, circulation interact with each other um, and affect. Uh, so right ventricular function affects left ventricular function. So let me uh, pause for a second and summarize what we have learned so far. We've learned that the right ventricle developed uh, late during evolution as a specialized lung pump, and that, of course, is mimicked uh, during cardiogenesis in the embryo. And we end, and the right side of the heart ends up with two both anatomical and functional units. The right ventricular sinus, the pumping portion, that's a large uh, volume part or inflow part, and the infundibulum, which is the outlet. The geometry is indeed complex because you actually have two distinct units, one attached to the other. In normal hearts, they are seamlessly attached to each other, and it's hard to see the boundary between them. But there's plenty of congenital heart disease that demonstrate that these two units are indeed distinct. Um, the, the right ventricle contracts in a peristaltic fashion, and there's predominantly uh, longitudinal motion uh, with, very, with little twist 
as opposed to the LV. And finally, the RV and the LV interact with each other through shared myo myofibers, the pericardial space, the septum, and the coronary uh, arteries. So, uh, switching gears and moving on to uh, imaging. So, what do we do with all of that information when it comes to the clinical arena? And we, in fact, do have a, uh, a number of imaging modalities that we can use to assess, uh, to assess the right ventricle. And by the way, we can also assess the left ventricle, which is affected by the right ventricle. So uh, we cannot, of course, use uh, all of these echo, MRI, catheterization, uh, CT, nuclear, and, um, and whatever's going to come next when it comes to every patient. Uh, so just throwing all of these imaging uh, modality, it's not the right thing for the patient, let alone uh, for uh, society. So what we have to do is to balance uh, the clinical question, the uh, age, body size, ability to cooperate, uh, previous surgery, what was done, presence or absence of metallic implants and the nature of these metallic implants. Um, I think I already mentioned patient cooperation. Then the risk benefit of the procedure. Every uh, one of these modalities has its own uh, advantages and disadvantages. Cost, which is becoming uh, ever increasingly more important uh, in uh, care of our patients. And then local resources. Makes no sense to recommend some um, exotic imaging modality. There's maybe two or three people around the country that know how to apply it uh, and make it a recommendation uh, when it cannot actually be applied uh, universally. So this is an old diagram that, uh, that uh, comes from a uh, review article that we did uh, now eight years ago, seems like yesterday. But um, uh, comparing the uh, diagnostic utility cost and basically the pluses and minuses of echo, cardiography, cardiac MRI, cardiac CT, and nuclear. And I can tell you that uh, the take-home message, it's a very busy slide, and the take-home message from this slide is essentially that none of this imaging modality is perfect. None of this imaging modality gives you all of the information that you need and that the role of the uh, clinician and uh, increasingly the uh, clinician imager is to decide how best to apply this and, and in which circumstance, in which patient, and uh, how to use the information because the output from these studies is becoming increasingly more complex. Uh, and the only thing that I would have, uh, if we were to write this paper uh, today, the only thing that we would change is uh, some of the parameters and utility of cardiac CT uh, that uh, has uh, rapidly evolved and became better in the last couple of years. The bottom line is that there's no perfect modality and our uh, job is to use uh, uh, clinical judgment and expertise uh, in putting these together in a complementary fashion which translates into the expression of multimodality imaging. That's what multimodality imaging means. Uh, of course, the, it has to be 
combined with uh, what's available locally and access to uh, modality. In practice, and that's true uh, today uh, still, is that ECHO and MRI are being used uh, as the workhorses. ECHO is uh, essentially the primary imaging modality. Uh, we use CT only when MRI is either contraindicated or uh, is nowadays more, uh, increasingly uh, being used in selective cases where you want to do anato mostly anatomy very fast uh, and uh, modern CT uh, can do that for you. Nonetheless, uh, all of us have to be cognizant of the risk of ionizing radiation and to remember that there's no safe low limit for uh, ionizing radiation exposure and to remember that uh, the age sensitivity of uh, radiation, this is all data, but the principle still uh, is relevant. And this is the relative risk of uh, uh, dying from cancer in, um, and on the y-axis and on the x-axis is age at CT examination. And you can just see comparison between abdominal and head. But basically, there is an inflection, a rise, a sharp rise in risk of cancer or biosensitivity to ionizing radiation in young patients. So this is just something to um, remember uh, when you apply modalities that use ionizing radiation. ECHO is the uh, primary imaging modality. It essentially has become an extension of the stethoscope. It's portable, relatively inexpensive, and does have excellent diagnostic yield in infants and children. Uh, the problems with ECHO are uh, acoustic windows, acoustic windows, and acoustic windows. This is the, the, the problem is that there's just areas of the heart that are difficult to image. And of course, the older our patients, this is the fruits of our success. Uh, since the great majority, more than 98% of babies born with congenital heart disease now survive to adulthood, uh, that growing population of patients who had uh, repaired, and that the word repair, the phrase repair is not really accurate because it's more the phrase palliation would perhaps be more appropriate. So we have this growing population of palliated congenital heart disease uh, patients. Uh, and it's, uh, as they grow, echo becomes more and more challenging from a technical perspective. When it comes to the right ventricle, it is especially challenging because the right ventricle lies right behind the sternum, which now uh, has scar tissue, his sternal wires, um, there's lungs overlying the, uh, the heart, and uh, all of these combi combination of factors work against uh, good imaging of the right ventricle by echocardiography in, uh, in adults with congenital heart disease. In practice, uh, we have a number of techniques that are available to us when it comes to echocardiography. And you can see here the whole slew of parameters of what we can derive by using these techniques, anywhere from M-mode that's been with us since the 1970s uh, to speckle tracking, uh, that's the latest 
technique in that and we can derive all of these factors and we are still finding our ways as to how to use this um, I can uh, tell you that uh, MRI is um, a complementary imaging modality uh, that um, I will just uh, move ahead these these uh, two or three slides essentially give you the message that uh, echo has limitations when it comes to assessing RV size and function and if you rely on eyeball assessment uh, you will be wrong uh, in about one in three uh, to one in four. It's just a question of by how much um, you would be incorrect. Uh, so this is just data that document that observation. Um, and these are some of the more recent uh, uh, parameters that have been used in ECHO. And uh, when uh, uh, this, this talk is, uh, is uh, given to uh, mostly to cardiologists, there's some interest in terms of which of these uh, techniques are, is best uh, used in clinical practice. The bottom line of that is that none of this is uh, perfect and each of uh, these techniques have uh, some limitations and more recently we're trying to figure out how uh, non-geometric parameters such as strain uh, uh, can be used in order to overcome some of these uh, limitations. MRI has the advantage of being non-invasive, there's no ionizing radiation exposure, uh, it is independent on acoustic windows, uh, the accuracy and reproducibility of MRI measurements have been studied extensively, it's good, it's not perfect, but it's good, uh, much better than uh, echocardiography, and we uh, learned over the last 15 to 20 years how to use this information to guide clinical decisions. There are disadvantages, costs a lot, gonna cost you, uh, it depends, uh, uh, you'd uh, probably pay two, two and a half million dollars just for the machine and then you'll have to pay uh, a hefty sum of money just to uh, prepare the room and site the machine. Um, so that cannot be ignored. Contraindications, uh, relative contraindications exist, uh, especially with old style pacemakers and AICD devices. It's adversely affected by stainless steel coil. And there's expertise discussed, but that's getting better. And then analysis is still time intensive. And I've been saying that for about 20 years. It should get better. The MRI folks in the audience, uh, there's maybe two of them know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, MRI provides wealth of information. It goes well beyond just uh, size and function. Uh, you can derive, uh, you can study the composition of the myocardium. You can image scar tissue. Uh, you can uh, uh, get into fairly sophisticated analysis of strain, uh, 4D flow, uh, and, and there's actually some clinically useful information that uh, this is, goes well beyond uh, pretty pictures. Uh, this is just a study that we published uh, uh, two years ago about diffuse, uh, quantifying diffuse fibrosis 
in the in hearts of patients with repeated childhood follow so you can actually look and do essentially virtual histology virtual quantitative histology uh, when it comes to the heart I so what do we do with all of this information? How we take all of this wealth of information and translate it into clinical decisions? And there's, of course, the right ventricle plays a major role in congenital heart disease. This is why we've been interested in that for very long. Our adult colleagues are only now uh, starting to uh, become interested in that. And repeated challenge of Fallot is probably the largest group of patients uh, with right heart disease um, that we uh, deal with on a daily basis. So these patients do not uh, again, we do not repair them. We do not really um, truly heal them. What we do is we palliate the heart disease and we get the heart to its best, best possible uh, situation. Uh, and in many of these patients, over decades, uh, this, uh, the heart starts to fall apart. And this results in um, electromechanical cardiomyopathy in these patients, which is the result of years of severe chronic volume load and in some patients pressure overload. And you can see this heart uh, right here. You can see how massively dilated this right ventricle is. You can see the wall thickness, which is enormous. You can see the RVOT and VSD patches. So this is an example of electromechanical cardiomyopathy. And in fact, these patients do ex experience accelerated rates of death when they get into their 30s and 40s and beyond. So uh, we've learned a lot about risk factors uh, in this patient population. And I will, this is some of the old literature, but more recent studies uh, look at what cardiac MRI has to offer in this particular group of patients, especially as compared with more simple uh, techniques such as just the electrocardiogram, just measure QRS duration on the electrocardiogram, and uh, you may have uh, all that you need. So we uh, challenge that uh, question uh, by putting together a multi-center cohort uh, and we set out to uh, figure out what the, whether MRI adds to prediction of bad outcomes in this patient population, and in fact demonstrated that compared, this is the C index, the ability to predict death or sustain VT here. This is QRS alone, and this is uh, using MRI parameters to predict the outcome, and you can uh, then just see how MRI provides much superior outcome prediction in this patient population as compared with QRS alone. And, of, and when we look at which MRI parameters predict the outcome, we uh, found some unexpected finding, for example, right ventricular mass, something that nobody has paid attention to and hasn't been mentioned before, turned out to be a powerful predictor of uh, death sustained VT in this patient population. And you can see here the application of these uh, predictors uh, found on multivariable analysis. And the more of these risk factors you have, of course, the uh, shorter the time to uh, 
death or sustained VT in this patient population. So uh, all of these observations can be put to work in order to guide clinical, and I'm going to skip uh, some of these slides in the interest of time, but mostly to make the point that we can now uh, guide clinical management, basically a decision to uh, insert a pulmonary valve either in the catheterization laboratory or in the operating room uh, based on these imaging parameters, mostly from MRI, but ECHO has a role in uh, non-invasive assessment of uh, right ventricular pressure because RV hypertension is also an important player. So uh, these are uh, the indications for pulmonary valve replacement that um, uh, from, a, from a study that we put in an editorial uh, written a couple of years ago. Uh, and what is important to point out is that many of these are based on cardiac MRI, some based on echo, some based on EKG, and uh, some are purely clinical, but when put together, uh, imaging parameters play a major role in deciding what to do and when to intervene in this patient population. So these are just the MRI parameters, and uh, this is answering the question whether ECHO still has a role in this patient population, and the answer to that is a resounding yes, uh, basically uh, for assessment of RV pressure. Uh, ECHO is quite good at assessing the left ventricle and of course there's work in progress that uh, we are excited about in identifying threshold for RV dilatation and dysfunction uh, using ECHO in order to uh, uh, increase the utility of echocardiography in this patient population. So, in summary, uh, the, what we uh, discussed in the last 15 minutes or so, is that the right ventricle uh, developed late uh, during evolution as a specialized lung pump. Um, it does have complex geometry and function. Um, the use of imaging uh, involves application of different modalities. Echo and MRI are the dominant modalities uh, with CT and invasive testing in uh, selective cases and that clinical decisions are dominated by MRI-based measurements of RV volumes, ejection fraction, and mass. Um, but this is evolving, uh, and that future research uh, is going to focus, or is focusing, on refinement of these image-based criteria so that we can do better in terms of taking care of our patients. I want to thank all of my uh, colleagues back at home and uh, I want to thank you for your attention.